Please open with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We have come to the conclusion of another series, which we started in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 11, 12, the series we entitled The Mission of the Kingdom. The Mission of the Kingdom. If you were to look with me at Matthew chapter 10, you will be reminded as we've studied and spent a number of months here, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gathers his disciples and he instructs them to go with this gospel proclamation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And majority of this chapter is Jesus's address to the 12. And then in chapter 11, as he sends them out, Jesus himself goes on the same mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He goes out and he searches for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as he finds them, he gives them this very special and very simple command. And he tells them at the end of chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yet, instead of running to him to be taken back into the fold of God, the sheep represented by the Pharisees and the scribes, they ignore the call. And in chapter 12, they not only ignore him, but they accuse him, they blaspheme him, and they in fact conspire to destroy him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 12. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. This is the setting that we find ourselves in this morning. And you know, as we come to these last verses of this chapter, I want you to remember that throughout the gospel, Matthew has focused on the greatness of Jesus Christ. He wanted to put an accent on who this person is. And he begins, remember, as Magi come to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter two, and they ask, where is the king? And everybody's in uproar, right? Why, why is Matthew writing this event? He wants us to see that Jesus is greater than er any earthly king. As he transitions into the Sermon on the Mount, he wants us to see that Jesus is greater than the original lawgiver, Moses. That he's greater than Elijah as we look at chapters 8 and 9, as we look at chapters 10, 11, and 12. Elijah, who performed many miracles, Jesus performs greater miracles that identify him as the Messiah. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. In chapter 12, we find out that Jesus is greater than the temple. He is greater than the Sabbath. In fact, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. There is none greater than Jesus. And so as Jesus closes his discussion here, his interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes, he drives this point home again and again and again. To reject this Jesus, to reject him, is to reject God's greatest message 
of greatest hope. To not respond properly to Christ is to reject the greatest message and the messenger. I want us to read to the end of this chapter, beginning with verse 38, and we will look at the greatness of Christ. Verse 38, he continues on, Matthew continues on this discussion with the Pharisees that that began with verse 24, and he says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up against this nation, against this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and it does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want us to see here as we conclude this section of Matthew, this main idea, Christ says, right, the greatness of Christ demands a radical response of faith. The greatness of Christ demands a radical response of faith. I want us to see three things about this Christ here in our passage. First, Christ is the greatest prophet. Number two, Christ is the greatest king. And number three, Christ is the greatest love. And since he is the greatest prophet, king, and love, what should be our response? And I want us to focus on that this morning. Christ is the greatest prophet, verse 38. Notice, first of all, how these verses are connected to what came before. Jesus had just rebuked the Pharisees, for their blasphemous words, which only revealed the content of their hearts, the state of their heart. They opposed Christ with their speech, Jesus says, because your heart is evil, your treasury is evil. 
in this prior section of verse 30, verses 38 through 37. Now in verse 38 here, they answered Jesus' rebuke with a request for a sign. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And notice how they're, they're, they want to be respectful. They come up to Christ and they say, they call him teacher, teacher. But deep inside, Christ knows their hearts. They don't honor him as teacher, as Lord, right? They don't even like him. They don't believe in him. They've just witnessed the greatest miracle here in verse 22 that proved that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet they declared him to be of the devil. So what are they requesting here in verse 38? Well, they're not just demanding another miracle. They're demanding a sign. Um, Matthew uses two different words for signs and miracles. And this sign here would point to this undeniable, unmistakable evidence. This sign refers to such an amazing act as to leave absolutely no room for doubt. No room for faith. We want to see something so glorious to prove that you're God. And then we would quote unquote follow you. What they are really doing is justifying their unbelief and blaming it on lack of evidence. If you could really show us, Jesus, teacher, if you can really show us more signs, if you can give us more proof, then we will follow you. What's striking about this request is that it's eerily similar to Satan. In Matthew chapter four, verse three, when, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he says this, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. You see the similarity? If you are this, show us a sign. Prove that you're the Messiah. Prove that you're the greatest one. The devil never intended to follow Jesus. His goal was to tempt the son of God. So also the scribes and the Pharisees again and again demonstrate that they are made up of the same stuff as their father. No wonder Jesus in few verses prior to this in verse 34 calls them, you brood of snakes. You're just like your dad. You're just like your father. They were simply trying to get the focus off of their evil heart that Jesus right here exposes your evil. They're trying to take their focus off of that and onto Jesus's supposed lack of ability. You can't prove it. He just did. I, I sometimes wonder if this guy who was there just healed, if he's standing maybe in the back when they ask for a sign and he's like, hey, I'm right here. What more do you need? I'm right here. What does Jesus do? Does he satisfy their request? Well, Jesus refuses to play those games in verse 39. He knows the truth of the matter of their hearts. And he lays it right there out before them. And he calls them and says, you are evil and adulterous generation. 
you are evil and adulterous. You are evil in that you do not believe in me and adulterous because you pretend as the religious elite to be about God's business, right? Scribes constantly in the law of God, you pretend to be in my business. You pretend to be righteous, yet your heart does not belong to me. Your request for a sign only proves that you are evil. Think about this. What is wrong with asking for a sign? What's wrong in this context is that it proves lack of faith. Think about this. Miracles and gifts, right, or or signs, they are gifts that the Father gives at his own pleasure, at his own pleasure. No one has the right to demand these things from God. They're not giving signs and miracles. They're not giving to convince unbelievers ever. Unbelievers are always called to become believers, to exercise faith, to trust. And here in the context, Christ, who had just healed the man, notice at his own pleasure, no one told him, heal him. He decided out of his own goodwill to heal a man. He stands in front of them and he calls them, believe in me, no more signs are needed. You have enough evidence. I've already proven myself over and over and over again. Leon Morris In commenting on this section, he says, his Christ miracles were always directed towards the fulfilling of a need felt by those for whom the miracle was performed. Jesus was not a circus performer, gratifying the appetite for wonders on the part of the people who were not serious about spiritual things. Jesus is not a clown who comes in order just to satisfy your sinful appetite. So Jesus says, no sign will be given to you at this time. In essence, Jesus says, I will perform no sign to entertain your evil, stubborn heart. And from now on, as we will continue to study Matthew, you will see that this is Jesus's way of operation when it comes to the Pharisees and the scribes. Something similar happens in um, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus says in verse four, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and the sign will not be given to it except for the sign of Jonah, which we'll get to. And he left them and he went away. He's not even entertaining. He's not talking to them anymore about who he is. They already know who Jesus Christ is. He says, except yet no sign will be given, but the sign of Jonah. There will yet be another sign, but it will come in the future. What is this sign? This sign will come not when Jesus is demanded to show the sign, but when the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit deem it necessary to demonstrate this sign. And this sign here in verse 40 is the sign of resurrection, of resurrection. This is yet the clearest indication that we find here in Matthew of Christ's death and resurrection. Already here, he is trying to um, educate, he's trying to teach the crowds as well as the Pharisees and scribes, but more so his disciples about what is to come. 
resurrection. There will be a sign. You want a sign? There will be a sign, but not now. It will come later. And listen, no miracle Jesus performed proved him to be the Messiah more than this sign of resurrection. This sign proved again and again that Jesus is the son of God. If you go to Romans chapter one, verse four, Paul in opening this glorious letter to Romans, he says this, Jesus who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the son of God by the power of resurrection. That proved him to be who he said he was. Peter preaches the first sermon in Acts chapter two, verse 24. He says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then in verse 26, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, there will be a sign. And Peter later on looks and he says, Israel, you asked for a sign. There it is. There it is. Jesus is alive. So let all Israel know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ, there's a sign coming and Jesus will spend three days in the heart of the earth. He will be buried is what this means, but he will resurrect. The resurrection is the greatest sign and affirmation of Christ's Messiahship and Lordship. In fact, no other event has more significance for mankind than the resurrection of Christ. Yet, here, it is yet future. Yet future. But guess what? I I want you to see something here. What if resurrection happened right there? What if resurrection happened, like they asked for a sign and, and Jesus somehow was able to go through it all and resurrect and say, ah, there I am, there it is. What if it happened right there? Well, scripture tells us, Matthew tells us later on that even this sign wasn't enough to convince the skeptics. Look with me, flip to the end of this book, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, I want you just, I want to read a couple of verses here to demonstrate this fact. For a true skeptic, even this sign is not enough. In Matthew 28, Jesus resurrects from the dead. And in verse 10, we read this, or verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. What happened? Jesus is alive. Jesus resurrected. And verse 12, and then when when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they said, now we believe. That is the sign that we were all looking forward to, right? No. They consulted together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Signs. Friends, church, 
signs are never intended to convince skeptics. Even the resurrection wasn't enough to prove that Jesus was who he said he was to them. Because signs are not God's means of proving himself or leading men to salvation. All these signs and miracles did was to prove that these people had an evil and adulterous heart. That's all it proved. So here comes Jesus' warning if you go back to Matthew chapter 12 in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up and will condemn you. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn you because they repented and you did not. Everyone was familiar with the story and the prophet of Jonah. The scroll or the book of Jonah was read every single year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. They were very familiar with what happened there. Everyone knew the message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites. As Jesus uses Jonah's experience here in the belly of the fish for his burial and resurrection, he recalls the message that Jonah preached. And and consider, friends, consider this message. God sends this reluctant prophet, prophet to preach this message of doom. Do you remember the message that Jonah preached? In Jonah chapter three, verse four, Jonah comes to the city and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message that Jonah preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And at the sound of this message, we are told that the people of Nineveh, they believed in God. They believed the message. They believed in God. Think about this, the capital of Assyria, the nation that destroyed the top 10 tribes of Israel, they hear of this coming doom from God, this judgment, and they believe. Complete Gentiles experience God's grace. Just think about it, incomplete message brought by this reluctant prophet, and yet people respond They respond in faith. But how about this generation? In their presence stands one who is greater than Jonah. In their presence stands the greatest prophet, yet sinners refuse to repent. Something, Matthew writes, greater than Jonah is here. What was so great about Jesus in comparison to Jonah. Think about this. Jesus was not reluctant, first of all, in coming to save sinners. Jesus was willing. Jesus took on the body. He says, I go as the Father wills, and I want to do your will. It pleased Jesus to do the will of God. He wasn't running away from it. He was running towards it. For the joy that was said before him, we read in Hebrews, he endures the cross. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus preaches a message of grace, inviting people to come to him. He's not simply pointing them to God. 
He's not simply preaching the message of judgment and doom. He is preaching the message of grace. And he says, don't just go to God. No, I am God, Jesus. has come to me. What makes him great is because he came with a message that he delivered. He's the author of this message. Come to me and I will give you rest. Friends, Jesus not only preached grace, he is the author of grace. That's what makes him great. That's what makes him the greatest prophet, the greatest preacher of grace. Therefore, he says, they who repented at the message of Jonah will judge you who did not repent at my message. There is none greater than Christ. Yet their response does not demonstrate the kind of humility and surrender that Christ demands. Jesus wants them to respond to his word, to the message of the gospel, not to the signs, not to the signs. The signs only exist in order to authenticate the messenger and to prove who he is, believe his word, trust what he has disclosed. And so, beloved, we are confronted this morning with the same question. How are we, how are you responding to his word? Oh, do you repent at the hearing of the message of Christ as he commands, or do you refuse and instead Ask for more proof as if there needs to be more proof. The Ninevites, think about this, they had no signs. They had no signs. They may have heard about what happened with God's people, but they themselves had no signs. What did they have? They have God's word. And they repented at the hearing of God's word. Are you still looking more for more proof? All proof that we need is right here. It's found in the word of God. Everything that's required for our faith is just plainly laid out for us in scripture. And on top of that, we do have the proof of the resurrection, right? We come on this side of the cross and resurrection. It's there. And so Jesus calls the greatness of Christ, calls for this radical response. Believe, repent, confess your sins and cling to Christ by faith. There is none greater than Christ. No other response is accepted because of the greatness of the person who delivers this message. Christ, however, is not only the greatest prophet, he is Also, number two, Christ is the greatest king. Christ is the greatest king. He continues to warn here in verse 42, the scribes and the Pharisees, and with them the entire nation of the danger in verses 42 and 43. This time, however, Jesus here, he focuses on one thing, on the neutrality, the danger of neutrality to Christ. In other words, you cannot be neutral. You can't just sit on the fence because there is no fence when it comes to Christ. You are either here or you're there. The Pharisees are pretending to be not with Satan, but they're also saying, we're not with you until you show us the sign so that you may prove who you're from and then we can make the decision. In verse 42, the queen 
of Sheba, Jesus says, will also rise up against you. Who is she? Or the queen of the south. Who is she? Well, in First um, Kings chapter 10, we read about the queen of Sheba, who was reigning at the time of Solomon's rule in Israel. And so she hears of this great king, of this wise king. She hears of the riches and the splendor of his kingdom. The reports come to her and she's like, I, I can't believe this, what I'm hearing. I need to go and I need to check out for myself. She spares no resources to go and see and to hear, not a report about the king, but the king himself, the king of Israel. And Jesus says she came from the ends of the earth. She came from very far, in other words. And notice that as she heard the report, she didn't say, hey, Solomon, won't you come over and tell me all about your kingdom and all about your splendor and let me hear of your wisdom. No, she went to Solomon to verify their reports. And when she came, what happened? What happened when she heard? What happened when she saw? The scripture tells us that she was impressed. Ooh, she was captivated by Solomon. Look what 1 Kings 10, 6 and 7 says. Then she said to the king, to Solomon, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. It was true. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceeded in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. I had my doubts, but I believed enough to go and check it out. And now I'm a believer. And so she goes on to even praise the God of this king. She goes on to praise the Lord in verse nine. And she says, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you so as to set you on the throne of Israel. What about this generation? How did they respond? They're not impressed. They are not impressed. The one who is greater than Solomon, the greatest king of kings, comes to them. Notice, he comes to them and they are not impressed. Unlike Solomon, listen, unlike Solomon who was given wisdom, here stands one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He embodies wisdom and they care not. Unlike Solomon, who pointed men to fear God in Ecclesiastes, Jesus comes and he says, fear me, because I am God. He's the greatest king, he's the greatest Lord, yet the people are indifferent. They don't submit to him as king. They only want to focus on their morality without receiving the king's righteousness. And this is what he gets to in verses 43 and 45 in this parable here. And we need to be careful as we interpret this parable. It addresses, friends, this generation. Look at verse 45. This is the way. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. It addresses them, the people who had seen Christ up close and personal. It is not applied to any one man. He's not referring to the demon-possessed man in verse 22 here. He's not giving us a, a theology of demons. 
Jesus continues to address the generation that is craving for signs. And what is the point of the story here? What's the point of this parable? That what is the lesson here that we, that we draw away from it? Well, one of them is, friends, it is catastrophic to think that we can just reform our lives without having faith in Christ. That's the lesson. It is dangerous. It is, it is really suicidal to think that we can somehow reform our lives. We can clean it up. We can take a broom and sweep out all the bad things in our lives without having faith in Christ. Think about this. At this very moment, demons are being cast out as the kingdom of God is confronting the kingdom of darkness in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into Israel, to this generation, and he begins to clean their house. And yet, as a nation, they do not welcome the king. They do not want the king to move into their house. And as a result, their house, verse 44, is left unoccupied. Unoccupied. The king, in other words, is not on his throne. The people of Israel, represented by the scribes and Pharisees at this moment, they are more concerned to be seen righteous rather than being made righteous through the king's righteousness. They don't want the king. They don't want him. They just want to be perceived as those who are about God's business. Remember chapter six? They all, all they care is about being seen. They were reformed, but they were not regenerated. They worshiped themselves, not God. And that's the problem that Jesus here is addressing. Here stands the greatest king who invites all to come and find rest in him. And yet they say, nah, thank you. We're good. Look at all that we do for God. Look at our prayers. Look at our giving. Look at our fasting. Look at our evangelism for crying out loud. We go great lengths to make converts. That's what we do. Look at all the good works. We don't even break Sabbath like you do. That was the accusation in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus says they will suffer great judgment as a result. Augustine, he says this, said, good works, as they are called in sinners, are nothing but splendid sin. Jesus here teaches that personal reformation, this morality that focuses on good deeds alone without heart transformation, new birth, what we call regeneration, will result in worse ju judgment and catastrophe. It will be worse, he says. It will be worse. Because underneath their morality was self-righteousness and self-effort. 
Morality is a failure to renounce self and submit to Jesus, who in turn begins to work in and through you by his spirit. That's why things need to change. Jesus has to be on the throne. Jesus has to be your Lord in your heart, dominating so that actual change can occur. That's why in Ephesians, when we read, I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul is saying, after he explains the gospel in chapter three there, he goes on to say, he says, I pray. Here's what I'm praying for you. Christians, he's, not a, he's praying for believers, not unbelievers. And he says, I pray that you would understand more and more of the gospel and so that Jesus Christ would dwell, would reside in your heart. He would live there so that you would understand that he is my Lord, and when he resides in your heart, you will grow in love, love for Christ, love for one another. And then he goes on in chapter four, and he says this, now I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. Think about this. First, the gospel, then our dwelling on what we have in Christ. And he says, I want Christ to be in your heart. And only then he says, I implore you to walk. I implore you to be, and I implore you to do what is ultimately Christ accomplished and is doing in and through you. Without Christ in you, no matter what you do, you may be really good. You may be doing things, but it's of no profit to anybody, Christ residing, Christ doing, you accomplishing the will of God. That is the procedure. The scribes and Pharisees were proving again and again to be against Jesus because they didn't want to submit to Jesus. Verse 30 of chapter 12, they were not gathering with Christ. They were not gathering people to Christ. They rejected him ultimately. So that later on in Matthew 23, when he gives them all these woes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, at the very end in Matthew 23, 38, Jesus says he laments over their rejection and he says this, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Why? Because you didn't have good works? No, because you refused to submit to Christ. So church, beware, being good, is not enough. Being good is not enough. Being neutral to Christ is deadly. Is deadly. When applied personally to, to each heart, I think I, I can put it this way. Are you proud of how you've cleaned your own heart, your house? Are you proud of it? Maybe you started to come to church. Maybe you started to pray more. Maybe you cut out some cuss words from your vocabulary. And so it's not every fifth word. Now it's, you know, every 10th. Great accomplishments. Good. These things are good. Maybe you started, stopped cutting off people on the freeway. You did that before, but now you no longer do it. That's great. Yet, friends, hear this. Apart from being born again through faith in Christ, you will be the most moral person in hell. That's it. That's all that does to you. Friend, we, we must have Christ as the king. We must have him take up residence in our hearts. 
You can't do it yourself. Morality is not righteousness that Jesus offers. And only Christ has the righteousness that God accepts, that the Father accepts. Don't be foolish. Heed the warning. Do not remain vulnerable. Trust and continue to trust Christ. Don't be indifferent to the greatest king unless you submit to him. You have no covering for your sin. And friends, you have no power to overcome sin unless, the, unless Christ rules in your heart. That much is clear from the rest of New Testament. Believers, for all of us who continue to confess Christ, what authority are we submitting to today? Is Jesus ruling our hearts? Are, are, are we going to him as the source of all wisdom in order to receive instruction and direction for whatever move we're making? We have a great king. He's full of truth, and he imparts that to us each and every day through his word. He is the greatest Lord. He is the greatest king. He must reign Christ is the greatest prophet. Christ is the greatest king. And finally, I want you to see in verses 46 through 50 that Christ is the greatest love. Christ is the greatest love. He continues to speak here to the uh, scribes and Pharisees and all of a sudden he's interrupted. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking. While he speaks, boom, someone shows up. We're told in 46 that his mother and his brothers, they come in and they want to speak to him. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us the mindset of his family, brothers, mother, sister, but Mark does. Mark 3, 21, Mark says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. His family, friends, his mother, his brothers, his sister, they think he is out of his mind. Jesus is out of his mind. Uh, at this point here, none of the family members, they believe in Jesus like the disciples do. So they come in, right? Um, and no doubt they're, they're motivated by love for Jesus. For sure, Mary loved Jesus, just like she loved the rest of her family members. But they did not understand right? They thought that they were doing the best for their son, for their brother, Maybe they thought that this guy is just, his religious zeal, right, is going to ruin him. He's going to get killed, actually. Let's go in and, and we need to rescue him. We need to bring him home. Come home. Stop with this nonsense. They don't understand because they do not believe in Christ. They don't understand his mission. So they come in. And, and look at that. They think they have claims on Christ, and so they don't mind interrupting him. But look what Jesus says. But Jesus stops, obviously. He's interrupted. And this man who asks him, hey, your mother and brothers are there. They want to go see you. Jesus doesn't go. He looks at this man who brought this question, and he answers the one. And he says, who's my mother and brother? You can understand that man's probably response. Like, I'm just, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> All I'm doing is just delivering what they're here. Uh, and then without even giving him the time to respond, he says, looks at his disciples. Look at those who are next to him in this inner circle, inner circle. And he says, behold, my brother or my mother and my brothers. 
I wonder if Matthew meant a little more than, than what we just simply uh, understand it to be here in verse 46, where he says, his mothers and brothers were standing outside. They were not in fellowship with Jesus. They weren't following Jesus. They were outside. And he says, those who are with me, those who are next to me, they are my mother and brothers and sisters. What is the point that Jesus makes? Well, Jesus reveals the kind of relationship that he is looking for. A relationship with Jesus, friends, is not determined by outside factors, by external factors. No, they are determined by inner characteristic. There is a greater love that's at stake. There's a greater priority that Jesus addresses here. I mean, think about this. Think about this, this general question, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus come to earth? Was it to have earthly family? Did he come to earth to experience the dynamics of being a brother and being a son and having a sister? Is that why he came to earth? No, he came to earth in order to save sinners from their sins. That's what Matthew chapter one says. He left his father's throne. He experienced the the closest of human relations you can, or relations you can, familial relations you can experience. He left that. Isn't that why we we used to sing this song? Should probably sing it again. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's why he came. And here we are taught a lesson. You know, some in the natural family might not decide to submit to Christ. It may take some longer than others to submit to Christ, to accept him. Some in your family, they will love Christ as the greatest love, but some will reject him. And if that happens, how will you respond? How will you respond? Friends, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not against the family here. Family is from God. He instituted family, earthly relations, familial relations. In fact, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees his mother and he takes the time to care for his mother from the cross. And he says, John, behold your mother. Take care of her. He loved his family. He cared for his family. Yet, as good as the family is, and as much as we're called to love our family members and one another, especially in our families, Christ is greater than our family and deserves the highest of love and devotion. That is the real relation. It is not through familial It is not a relation, it is not through blood that we are related to Christ. He's making the point that faith, faith is the point of entry into the kingdom of God, not blood, faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews believe that their blood was the point of entry. Remember what Matthew or what um, John the Baptist, I'm sorry, said, don't think that because you have the blood of Abraham running through you, that you will inherit the kingdom. Repent of your sin and trust Christ. 
And then he closes off in verse 50. For whoever does the will of the Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is God's will? Whoever does the will of God. What is God's will? We answer that question almost every single message, every time we're in the book of Matthew. What is God's will? Well, Jesus is the only one who does perfectly the will of the Father. That much is clear. How do we do God's will? We do God's will by believing in the one who does the will of the Father. We believe, we do God's will by believing in Jesus. And when we believe in Christ, we, friends, are identified with him as doing the will of God. Faith makes you part of the family. Faith in Christ makes you part of the family, not any other external relation. Now we know from Acts chapter two and other passages of scripture that Jesus' family then believed, ended up believing in Jesus, ended up following Jesus Christ, but not yet. And note the invitation again here in verse 50. Whoever, whoever, anyone is welcome, believe in Christ. The Lord has provided for your needs. He has protected you from harm. He has adopted you. He has given you his name. He is the greatest love. Church, there's none greater than Christ. Therefore, we must respond accordingly. We can't be neutral. All the proof there is to offer has been offered. It's recorded in his word. Don't ask for more evidence. Don't persist in being good apart from Christ without having Christ in his spirit transform you from inside out. Do the will of God by continuing to believe the word of Christ and delighting in him as your greatest love. There's a, a story of King Louis XIV. He reigned for, 40, uh, for 72 years. And throughout his life, he called himself King Louis the Great. King Louis the Great. Well, there came a day when the great one died. And as his body lay in the golden coffin in the front, orders were given for all the lights to be dimmed in the auditorium and for one candle to be set on his coffin in order to distinguish him as the great one. As the great one. And as thousands gathered for the memorial, Everyone waited in silence when suddenly a bishop came to the front of the room. He reached out and he snuffed that candle and proclaimed, only God is great. Only God is great. And this God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Come and rest in Christ. Isn't it a lot better to say rest in Christ than to say try harder, do more, stop this, you know, you don't measure up, do it better. Isn't it a whole lot better and biblical to say with Christ, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, learn of him, accept his work, and you will become true family member. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. May you continue to instruct us that if we deny this hope, that if we deny this call,
There no longer remains another call. There's no one greater. There is no one greater than Christ. And so help us to respond appropriately by placing our faith in him. Build us up as your church in this and call many more to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.